please stand in body or in spirit for the reading of the gospel? This is from Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on the on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. Because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. When people talk about 
The parable of the prodigal son, as it is inaptly named, they most often talk about the character of the prodigal, that is, the son who left. But Jesus directs his parable at the sons who stay, that is, the Pharisees who toil and labor so hard for God and then bitterly complain that Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. So if we are to hear this parable in the way that Jesus intended it to be heard, I think we have to situate ourselves with the Pharisee and identify with the elder son. For me, this isn't hard to do. I am literally an eldest child, and I've been in church all my life, and I'm a religious leader, and I was totally a goody-two-shoes growing up. <laughs> Followed all the rules. The rule-following part may be less true now that I'm a pastor, <laughs> but on the whole, I'm pretty straight-laced. Very law-abiding citizen. Never even had a speeding ticket. I actually have a horribly overactive conscience and get anxiety that I might have done something wrong without even knowing it. I truly don't break rules unless I feel a moral imperative to do so. As a teenager, my friend's parents used to be like, oh, Kendall will be there? Then of course you can go. <laughs> Nothing will happen if Kendall's there. This is all true. Everyone used to see me as the good kid. And then in adulthood, I cut my hair short and suddenly, people thought I must be a rebel. <laughs> it's very weird. I'm thinking about getting a tattoo just to really mess with people. <laughs> oh, so one time, I was, one time I was getting my hair cut, and the woman who was cutting my hair found out I was a pastor. And she was like, they allow you to have this haircut? <laughs> and I was like, um... Actually, I've never asked for permission, but yeah. <laughs> they even let me preach. <laughs> that was irrelevant. I just thought I'd share. <laughs> anyway, the point of all of that is to say, I don't know how much you can identify with the elder son. You may be more of a prodigal. I'm just saying, he is me. Jesus is talking, ugh. To me, which is almost as painful as finding out I didn't make the starting lineup on varsity or, God forbid, I made a B on a test. See, I'd make a great Pharisee, which I'm not supposed to be proud of, but just so you know, if there were like a Pharisee contest, I would beat you. <laughs> Here's the thing for all us elder son types out there. The season of Lent asks us to understand ourselves as the lost ones, which can be a hard pill to swallow if you're used to being the teacher's pet and mommy's little angel. As Henry Nouwen says, there are many elder sons and elder daughters who are lost while still at home. That's the parable, right? The elder son is most lost of all. 
because there's this party, this feast, this celebration happening, and he stays outside pouting because the party isn't for him, and he misses it. But how about we take a break from talking about me, I mean him, and focus elsewhere for just a minute, okay? I found myself getting really curious this year about the younger son and why he left. We know he made poor decisions after leaving, so we often assume the decision to leave was also bad. But I got to thinking, maybe not. Maybe he had suffered something really terrible and needed time away. Maybe his older brother bullied him and he couldn't take it anymore. Maybe he couldn't get along with his dad, and for good reasons. Maybe he was on a quest for meaning, but then he got sidetracked and things went awry. Not everyone who leaves does so for bad reasons. Biblical commentators often point out that asking for his inheritance so early was like saying to his father, I wish you were already dead. But I also started wondering, why on earth did dad say yes? Like, you're the grown-up, it's your money, say no, dude. Or give him 50 bucks, but not the whole thing. So was it simple resignation on the father's part, a sort of unhealthy, no-boundaries generosity? Was it because he was hurt and angry? Fine, take it, good riddance. Was he anxious to get rid of him? As far as we know, the father doesn't make any attempts to communicate with the son after he leaves. And so I just wonder if there was some difficult dynamic between them already so that when the son comes back and the father embraces him, it is not only the son's repentance, i.e. change of heart, but also the father's. After all, they move towards one another. The movement is mutual. I don't know. Jesus doesn't really get into those details. But I think we are supposed to get that it is the older son who sort of benefited from this division between father and younger son, whether it was a mutual offense or a one-sided one. I mean, sure, he stayed around and worked hard, but he also got to be the favorite son, the one who showed up in the family Christmas letters each year listing all his latest achievements. And there is a good chance that by piecing out early, his little brother got a smaller half of the inheritance, right? Because if the farm continued to amass wealth over time, sticking around was financially the better move. So when baby brother shows back up and big brother gets mad, I wonder if in part he is bemoaning the loss of certain privileges that come with essentially being the only child. He'll no longer be the favored one. So this return of the younger brother to an equal position in the family feels to the other brother like a loss for him, like he is being undervalued, unseen, and unappreciated. In truth, he is losing nothing of real importance, but it feels like loss to him. I'm reminded of when we got a dog when I was a kid, and the dog toys kept mysteriously disappearing until my mom figured out that my little sister, who was two years old at the time, 
kept hiding the toys behind the TV, we assume out of jealousy. Now, was the new dog a real threat to my parents' love and affection for my sister? Definitely not. But in her two-year-old mind, the threat was real. So for us, when other people receive God's favor or society's attention or they just finally attain real equity, the question for us is whether our minds are mature enough to accept this new reality as non-threatening. Do we respond from our two-year-old minds or from our hearts at rest in God's abundance? The thing is, feelings feel. You cannot just stop feeling threatened because a sermon tells you to. So what do you do when you have feelings that prevent you from accepting God's grace for others or their advancement in society? My first inclination is to send the elder son to therapy, but I recognize that wasn't an option available to him at the time. I still recommend it for all of us, though. But here's what transpires in the parable. The father goes out to his older son, just like he went out to meet the younger. And he doesn't scold him for how he's feeling. He doesn't shame him into attending the party and pretending to like it. Rather, he reminds him of what he already has. Quote, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And maybe the subtext is this. Even for you, my overachieving, perfectionist son, even for you, the grace has always been free and abundant unearned and ever-flowing. It's a lot harder to be judgmental of others when you finally accept yourself as already enough, isn't it? Judgment feeds off insecurity. Judgmentalism isn't a necessary skill if you're secure and know that you are deeply loved. It's the same with fear. You don't have to be afraid of losing privilege if you already know there's enough for everybody. I like the way Henry Nouwen puts it. He says, for most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but have always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God, 
but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. My dear friends, whether you are an eldest child or a prodigal one, whether you had a strained relationship with your earthly parents, or whether they were proud of you but you felt you had to earn their love, either way, may you hear your heavenly father, the great mother, say to you this day, my child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Even for you, the grace is and has always been free and abundant, unearned and ever-flowing. Quit striving, quit running, quit apologizing, quit trying to prove yourself, quit comparing yourself to others, quit stewing and obsessing, just come home and rest. Come home. I love you so much. There's no need to be jealous or angry that I love your brother too. Just come home. Amen.